Support this podcast at patreon.com forward slash Chris Kyle Photography Podcast. This is going to be a bit of a special one for me because not only are you my my favorite wedding photographer and wedding photography is my absolute favorite genre, but also I actually believe that you are technically the best photographer in the world. That's a, an opinion, obviously, but that's how I feel. How did you get started in photography and what was it about photography that you first gravitated towards? Goodness me, that's very kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> I don't know how I can live up to that intro, but um, <laughs> it was quite a long process really it was started with graphic design and doodling as a child actually not graphic design and I was always interested in creativity and expressing myself just through drawing so I used to want to be an artist for Marvel when I was a child so I used to draw Spider-Man and make my own superheroes up and stuff like that and then I used to start coloring, coloring them in with watercolor and that sort of taught me about color combinations and stuff like that and I didn't actually discover photography until I was 26 when I was browsing eBay and I was working as a graphic designer and a web programmer at the time and a usability consultant. And I just bought um, a Canon 350D on a whim, just as an impulse. And then I took it to Greece on holiday with my partner, Holly, and I started taking pictures of flowers and lizards, you know, the usual things that people take when they're on holiday, when they're just starting with a camera. Mm -hmm. And I just completely fell in love with it. And from that point onwards, I was 100% hooked. From there, though, one of the most sort of scary things that people seem to find about photography is, is weddings. Whenever I mention that I photograph weddings for a living to photographers that don't, I always get the same kind of sharp, scared reaction or disapproving reaction. What was it that led you to photograph your first wedding? I never actually chose to shoot weddings originally. I used to want to be a fashion photographer. Um, people like Rankin were my favourites. But I ended up doing some headshots for my work and a photographer in Norwich called Duncan Kerridge, which I'm very grateful for. He sort of gave me some tips on ISO and shutter speed and stuff like that. And I did some headshots for the the uh, company I worked for at the time. And then the HR lady, Jane, lovely lady, she asked me to do some shots for her family. So I went around to their house and did some documentary shots of their family having fun and just being themselves really, which is actually a popular genre at the moment. And I think I did that, yeah, it was about 11 years ago now. And from that point onwards, I realized that actually having fun and interacting with people is where the value was for me. And before I knew it, I was shooting a wedding from someone of their friend's friend. And I studied really hard. Like I studied my favorite photographers for hours upon hours upon hours, sleepless nights, going to work, coming home and practicing religiously for months. And I shot my first wedding and it actually went really well. And from that point, I was, it was like a drug, basically. I had to shoot more and more. So I think I charged 200 pounds for that wedding in the first five weddings I shot. <laughs> mm. And like everybody else, when you're starting out, you want to give them everything. So they had like an engagement shoot for that, a little album, all the shots on a DVD, <laughs> the usual stuff, because you want to give more yeah. to prove that you're worth it when you're starting out. And then over time, you realize that you are worth it and your skills are worth it. And you can just bring that back a little But As to, to answer your questions with weddings being scary, I genuinely believe that if you can nail a wedding, you can nail pretty much any genre because you have to be good with portraits. You have to be good with documentary, documentary, sorry. You have to be good with photojournalism if you want to do it that way. You have to be good with details. You have to be good with landscapes, um, direct light, sunlight, ambient light, flash, off-camera flash, dance floor speeches. You have to be able to take a good picture using any kind of technique that you can implement in any other kind of photography. So I think... If you take a world-class photographer, they'll do a very good job in pretty much any genre. I mean, except like something war, you know, because not everybody wants to be jumped into a war zone. Yeah. That's a very difficult kind of photography because your life's at risk in some cases. But with weddings, as long as you're confident with your skill set and you know that you can produce in any situation. So if it's too dark, you know you can use a flash properly. If it's direct sunlight, you know how to use it. If there's no sunlight, you know how to use it. If you're indoors, you know how to look for the light and direction and stuff. There's nothing to, to worry about. And at that point, you start to realize that the most important thing is your mindset and how you interact with people and how you cope with pressure. And that's how you can really excel at weddings is to understand your weaknesses and to work on them. 
Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much sums up exactly how I feel in terms of, um, I don't think there's such a thing as a wedding photographer. You're a different photographer at different moments over the course of a day. Like you said, you could be a reportage photographer, a portrait photographer, food photographer, but you'll never, there's not really such a thing as a, as a wedding photographer. A wedding photographer is just kind of an umbrella for all of those different genres. As far as the average wedding day, which I know for you is, um, not an average wedding day from a lot of your work, but um, what about <laughs> weddings photographically do you enjoy the most? Is it the reported stuff? Is it the stuff with people or is it the, like the stuff, the time where you get the couple on their own and you get to kind of work with them without the distractions? What is it that, that you most enjoy? Mm, that's a very tough one because I like different elements from different parts. Portraits is a great time to really get to know the couple and to see them go through the process of relaxing and enjoying the shoot and realizing that they can take nice portraits because of course everybody's very nervous to start with. That's really rewarding. But at the same time, I do absolutely love getting to know people during preps because the pressure's off at that point and you can just listen to people, understand their mindsets and how they are as people and you can work with that, which sets you up for the rest of the day. But then I do love the party at the end because by the end of the day, you know everyone, you're, you're good friends with them and I jump in and I have a few drinks with people and get really involved in it. And I absolutely love that part of the day. But to answer it generally, it's just the interaction with people and seeing people react with each other and yourself and just being part of a celebration, basically. When you're someone as established as yourself, do you ever still struggle with people not understanding your style and wanting you to work in a way that's not what you're used to? That's not something that I would ever do. Um, I remember probably about two years ago, a planner that I work with in Italy. Love you, lady. She said, um, you're having a few less weddings at the moment because your style is not as trendy. And I just thought, oh, I didn't even realize that because I have a vision for my photography, which is, and this sounds really cliche, but I want it to last forever. I don't want it to be a trend. And so trends come and go, like you've got really pushing the blacks and you're clipping the black and the whites. Then you have all that sort of misty faded look at the moment, which is very trendy and popular or desaturating the greens. Um, I don't really uh, gel with any of that because spot color was trendy at one point, right? And all of a yeah. sudden it's horrific and the same with vignettes. So I tried to avoid all that. And I used to sort of be, my style was very creative. Like I'd shoot through everything all the time and I'd try and make sure I'm shooting through something or adding color here and there. But I realized that that's now the a trend as well and everyone's doing it. So I've really dialed that back and I've kept it very simple and very, elegant because I just want my images to be so easy on the eye. I want them to flow one after the other, not jolt in different camera angles and tilting and all that stuff. I want it to be a really smooth process that when you look, when the couple look through, they're carried without any sort of jolting frames and stuff. That's personal mm -hmm. preference, of course. But if someone doesn't like that, I'm not going to change for them because I do what I do because it's who I am. And when someone, as you know, if someone books you who loves what you do, that's when you get the best chemistry. So that's what I look for. When it comes to the fact that you're obviously dealing with a, an enormous number of people within the scope of your job over however many years, you know, even per year, just by the number of guests at each wedding, do you ever find yourself or have you, okay, so better way of asking is that have you developed ways to keep yourself positive when maybe you're around people that don't make you feel particularly positive when you're trying to do your job? <laughs> yeah, <we've, laughs> that's a very well-worded question for how do you deal with idiots? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, any customer facing person has to deal with uh, some unsavory personalities, right? You can tell I work um, in weddings. <laughs> it's basically understanding that never take anything personally is, is the key because some people don't handle stress very well. So you might have a mother with a bride who's actually a lovely person, but she's really stressed out. Or you might have a dad who's really, really nervous because he's got to walk, walk his daughter down the aisle and he's very, very nervous about that. And they can be quite sort of snappy and short. And if you take that the wrong way early on, it can actually sort of sour the relationship a bit. So I always think to myself, and this is obviously not related to photography, it's a general philosophy thing and sorry, psychology is that you never know what's going on behind someone's eyes. They might have problems to deal with. They might be having a bad day. They might have heard some bad news. So anything that comes my way that's just short, I literally just let it go because it's, it's not worth it. And at the same time, uh, mental health is a big topic at the moment. It's like a hot topic and quite rightly it should be. I think that never ever let someone take your power away. If people talk about having power, but then they get upset when someone says something to them. But 
The only way you contain your own power and stay confident and happy and creative is if you don't let people push your buttons, because the more buttons you have, the less power you have. It's as simple as that. I mean, just before this call or just before this recording started, you mentioned uh, about having a bit of a radio silence on your social media and it not being that important to you. I don't disagree with the premise. I'm not, it isn't a loaded question, but why is social media not important to you? Because in a sea of social media where everybody is out trying to prove themselves and um, grasp for attention, I don't treat attention as a currency. A lot of people think attention is the currency that makes them successful, but I disagree with that. I think that the quality that you provide people and your peace of mind is your quality, is the, is the, the best currency. I've always said it, the most valuable currency is time. So any time that I have, I do stuff that I love and I do not love working on social media. Mm. And I'm lucky enough to have relationships with uh, some very, very good planners who I really get on well with me, work together well with, and they give me um, refer referrals. But also most of my work also comes from referrals from actually shooting a wedding. I do get inquiries from social media, but not that many. Um, and it doesn't really bother me. So I suppose I'm not saying don't use social media at all because it's very, very useful for so many people, <laughs> millions of people. But for me personally, it's not necessary. And so I don't have to use it as a necessary evil, if that makes sense, because I don't really like being the center of attention and I just cannot bear posting pictures of my own face doing this, that or the other. I mean, who cares what I'm eating or what shoes I'm wearing, you know? <laughs> I, don't, I don't really think anyone's interested. I mean, sometimes I think it would be quite interesting to document the travel that I'm doing and stuff, but honestly, I find that quite sort of self, not self-centered, but narcissistic. And that sounds horrible because anyone who uses social media, it looks like I'm saying they are, I don't mean that, but personally, I just like to keep myself in the shadows and just enjoy myself and work when I need to work. Well, other people could be doing that and doing it for a completely non-narcissistic reason. If you know your own motivation would feel narcissistic, then that is totally fair. You do, in yes, a way, that's what I mean. Well, you do kind of, in a way, document some of your travel some of the time because another side of your work that I'm an enormous fan of, and I've noticed seems to, and I think because of the genre that it's in, tends to stir a little bit of controversy, is your street work. I love street photography, yeah. Um, so I saw some images of yours from Cuba a while back. And I was quite surprised because I love your street photography style because it reminds me so much of your wedding style. And it's so much of it is about timing and about juxtaposition. I was quite surprised to see some street photographers actually claim that your images weren't street photography. And I, I'm still trying to get my head around the rules of street photography because I've, I've dabbled in it very slightly in a very poor way. It just seems to be a genre that's got a load of rules put in place by people that maybe don't do it all that often. Well, I don't even remember anyone saying that to me because I've, I don't think I've actually read that about myself or heard it. So um, that's news to me, Chris. <laughs> oh, so I do apologize. No, it's okay. It doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. I'd be a hypocrite if it did upset me. Um, again, I shoot street the way I want to see street photography. So I shoot the way I see the world. And I don't really see how it can be controversial because when you take a photograph, you're taking, it's, it's not just the subject, it's yourself because it's how you see things. So it nothing's controversial. And I mean, they always say that the best art, I'm not saying mine is of course, but the best art should have lovers and haters because it should divide opinion. And mm -hmm. um, if it's just lukewarm, it doesn't really go anywhere. That's this quote that's always stuck with me when it comes to being who I am and just, you know, just putting out whatever you think you should do. And that includes music. You never want to be vanilla. No, no. That's not my, my personality because I'm a sci-fi geek, you know, I'm a stargazer. I had some sort of weird experiences seeing things in the stars when I was a kid and that trying to change my viewpoint on life and what things should be about. Um, and so I've never been, well, apart from being sort of bullied a bit at school because I used to have long hair, um, that also taught me how not to treat people. So I was kind of lucky as a kid. I had a, an open mind from a very young age and that's been very helpful for me as I became a professional. But to answer your question about street photography, um, I think it's much more difficult than people think because I've seen people who they look at a good street shot and think, oh, that's easy. That's just a line. This is a line, but go out and try it. It's very difficult, but it's the most rewarding thing ever because you have to wait and wait and wait. And I think it's a wonderful pastime hobby. Well, I think there's a, a tremendous parallel between wedding photography and street photography because essentially from my perspective, I feel like street photography is photographing a narrative the same as what a wedding is, but you have even less control over it. And 
you have less control over the the conditions. You don't know anything about what's going to happen going into it. So it actually prepares you really well for weddings where it, you can train your eye with it. You can train your timing. You can train your ability to interact potentially or not interact with people that don't want to be photographed, which a wedding can quite often be about and not be noticeable. So I think they actually feed into each other quite well. Do you use street photography as a uh, a way of getting away from weddings or is it something that's actually lent itself to developing your skills as a wedding photographer? Yes, very well said. And it's the latter. Developing street means you can think quickly on your feet. I didn't mean that to rhyme either. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> you can, um, it teaches you to be patient, to keep your, all of your senses open and look for opportunity. But at the same time, if you get a really clever street shot when things are aligned and you've got different styles of lighting, you can set that up in a, in a wedding easily and sort of fake it as such. I don't do that. And in fact, I make a point of making my wedding and street look different now um, because I don't really think the couples I shoot for would appreciate the kind of street that I do, which is tricking the eye and juxtaposition. But I'll try and put it in there now and then. But my wedding photography is more editorial and elegant at the, uh, nowadays. One of your most prominent weddings, I think, in the forefront of anyone that knows your work's mind would have been the wedding that you photographed at Blenheim Palace. Oh yeah. As someone that photographs wedding, I'm, I'm, uh, weddings, I'm extremely jealous of the day, but also I would be terrified to take on something of that magnitude. Can you just, I, I don't want you to talk about anything that you're not comfortable with, but can you just talk about the experience of that day, given it was such an enormous production of a wedding? Well, the first thing is I'm absolutely gutted that I had to take the pictures offline. <laughs> the, um, uh, the groom originally said I could post a few pictures, but then the bride changed her mind, bless her, and they're all taken down. So at the moment, there's only sort of pretty much detail shots on because that was a that was a killer wedding. To answer your question, I didn't actually know it was going to be that big because the planner got in touch with me and said, we've got a nice wedding in London, Blenheim Palace. And being as naive as I am, I didn't even realize where that was at first. So I just went, oh, that sounds nice. I sort <laughs> of Googled it and thought, that looks like a pretty decent venue. I actually had no idea about it, to be honest. <laughs> And um, so I turned up with a couple of shooters with me, uh, Dan Morris and John Mould, lovely guys, who worked very hard for me. And I saw the scope of it, like you said, and I thought to myself, I've never shot anything like this before in my life. I mean, I can't tell you, I don't think I can share publicly the value of things, but you wouldn't believe how much they spent on just the flowers. I definitely should have had a different price list. <laughs> well, I think it was actually reported in, in newspapers. I mean, probably not accurately, but there was there was a bit of a to-do about this, the sheer size of the wedding and whether or not it was, I think the newspaper went from the angle of whether or not it was moral for that much money to be spent on a wedding. And yeah, it's, it, it, I mean, for, for a wedding to make the news in its production, I think that says a lot about what you had to do as the, as the photographer for the day. Yes, yes, you're right, actually, it did. Um, but I don't know if those figures were accurate. I can't even remember them. But um, it was incredible, actually, because when I first got there, I put into practice the things that I teach people, which is stay calm and just shoot because you know how to do things. Like Most people worry about weddings, but the, the worst case scenario generally is you'll shoot a good wedding. And that's pretty much it. So I just thought to myself, I'm not going to change anything. So there's some of the um, first dance and no, sorry, the speech shots. So some of the favorite I've ever shot and they actually hired in a professional lighting um, rig for that and team. But I actually ended up telling them where to position the lights. So I went up there and instruct, instructed, instructed them to put lights here and there and the, the levels of them and then augmented that with my own lights because I was just being confident. And being a photographer, that obviously means light mapping in sort of pseudo Latin. I'm responsible for the light. So I had, I had to have it really perfect. So I actually put quite a lot of control into that wedding and set up being confident, more confident than I thought I would be because I'm a very sort of reserved person laid back in real life. But you have to be confident in this sort of situation because you're dealing with people who are used to confidence and they're dealing with people who are professional and they deliver. So I was just that person. And thankfully, because like I said before, I knew I had the skills to do it. I wasn't actually worried about achieving anything. I just did what I did, trusted my skill set, spoke to people equally. And they were actually all lovely people. Naza, the bride, I, mean, I was actually quite annoyed because they, they, the papers were saying she was just some sort of like gold digger or such, but she's a successful sort of, so I think she had three degrees, one law, one biochemistry or something. And she's a very intelligent, lovely, lovely girl. And, and they both made me feel exceedingly welcome, their whole family. And um, her flow was an absolute gent and uh, laugh through the whole day as well. And, and uh, both Dan and 
John would back me up on that. That was really good fun. I mean, one of the things that I think just in terms of the, um, the challenge of photographing a wedding like that would just be knowing where to start in a room that has so much detail when you want to kind of find the smaller pieces when you've got so <laughs> much to cover. Did, did you almost have to have like a mental checklist to make sure you were covering everything? Because it feels like from the images I've seen, it's a well above and beyond what you would normally be faced with on an average wedding day, even for you. The, it was a, it's one of the biggest I've shot, yeah. But I mean, I have since shot some really big weddings. That I just, they're all under NDA. I can't share them. And I don't think I've really shared any new work for like two years. I'm currently working on a new website with some awesome content that I haven't. That's one of the reasons I'm being silent as well, because I'm going to launch with a new website next month at some point. Um, but I've got a lot more content to share and I'm pretty much used to that scale now. Um, but it was a definitely jump at diving in the deep end. I'm not sure if I actually answered your question then. No, no, you're, you're all fine. You're all fine. So you've also photographed a fair bit in Lake Como. I've seen weddings in Austria, pretty much all over the place. Um, everywhere that I'd like to go and photograph weddings. Where's your favorite place to photograph? And are there any that seem incredibly desirable to photograph, but actually are a lot more challenging than people realize? I did some um, editing masterclass workshops early March, just before the COVID lockdown kicked in. And I was showing people... Um, before and after shots from some of the big weddings that I've shot. And there's one on my Facebook, uh, sorry, there's one on my Instagram page, actually. It's um, that big opera house in Paris. There's some um, two little kids walking up this big flight of stairs surrounded by crazy flowers. Um, it's a beautiful shot. That's another wedding I can't share, unfortunately, because it's insane. But people sort of see that and think, oh, you know, I could do that because it's just this professional lighting, blah, blah, blah. But people on the course, and I think I taught 50 people in total, none of them could believe the before shot because the lighting was terrible. I mean, they hired a professional lighting rig who used spotlights, had different color tints to them, like purple, green, and they weren't even in the right places. Right. When, they did the, um, when they did the ceremony at the top of those stairs, the spotlight for the couple was actually off to the side. So it was over one of them and not the other. And then there was a random spotlight in the middle of the stairs, making it very bright. So just, Sometimes, and I think I gave them over a hundred pictures from that ceremony area, probably 150. And I had to painstakingly edit every single one of them. And I showed them, everyone on the workshop, the editing list, because you can see your history in Lightroom, can't you, on the left-hand side. Mm -hmm. They literally could not believe the amount of steps I'd put in for one picture, let alone over like 150. So there's a lot of time that goes into editing as well. It's not as simple as it looks a lot of the time. But that's, that's part of the skill set. You make something look like it hasn't been edited. And I think that's something I aim for. I don't want people to think that's an edit. Because when I'm critique, critiquing work or I see some shot online and you can blatantly tell that someone's edited that, like, you know, you see it all the time where there's a, a halo around someone where they've brightened them or they've darkened the environment around someone, but not very accurately. So everyone's got that ready Brett glow around them. Or if you see a face, <laughs> you know what I mean? Or a face yeah. that pops out the pops out the crowd because this has been bumped up, but nothing around that face looks natural. And there's obviously more grain on the face because of the ISO that's been pushed. The dynamic range is less on that face as opposed to the, the subject, which has got lovely light on it. I can't, I really don't like that kind of incongruency. So I spend hours and hours making sure you can't really see what I've done editing. With regards to your favorite places to photograph, I mean, Lake Como seems to be somewhere, I guess, because you know the planner or you have a great planner there that you know so well and, and word of mouth. I absolutely love one of the weddings on your website that was shot in Austria. But I imagine that those are two very different challenges, photographing somewhere like Lake Como with the heat and the humidity. Um, and also, I guess, just culturally, photographing a wedding in in sort of Italy or Austria or France is always going to be a slightly different affair. Um, where's your favourite place? Crumbs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I got the word crumbs from my grandmother, actually, just for the record. I don't usually say that, but she used to say it all the time and I stuck with our family now. We're also, we say that a lot. It's quite embarrassing. <laughs> To be honest, I love anywhere that's sunny <laughs> and open, but I do have a, a big soft spot for Lake Como because the venues are just so beautiful and I, I know them now, like I'm used to them. So when I go to Lake Como, it's like a mini holiday. So I, I have a big soft spot for Como, like Balbianello, Deste, and Pizzo, places like that. I absolutely adore shooting at them. But anywhere sunny where I can get some sunbathing in <laughs> is my favorite. <laughs> Not to, this is probably not going to be the most fun question for you to answer, so I'm going to apologize in advance. But you've won awards labeling you as best in England, best in the world, your Harper's Bazaar recommended, without listing all of them out. What kind of pressure does that bring 
to what you do when people are hiring you based off of seeing those, or maybe they're not hiring you based off of it, but when people that are hiring you see those kinds of awards, do you feel like that adds pressure to you? Do you like that pressure? Yeah, I thrive on that pressure, to be honest. I don't, I don't feel that as a negative thing because one of the things I used to do when I was starting out and growing as a photographer is I'd put my prices up higher than I thought I deserved because that pushed me to work to match those prices. So when I sort of won the awards, I didn't think, oh, I've made it. I thought I've achieved something, but that's nowhere near the end because an award doesn't mean that you've arrived. It just means that other people appreciate what you're doing. But if you don't, the second you stop pushing yourself is the second you plateau and you don't ever grow and you start to lose the love for it. So I think the learning process is really important and I just make sure that I'm always learning. And to fall back on social media, I know it sounds like I was slamming it, but I'm not, it's just a personal thing. I actually find that being away from social media and not looking at my Facebook, I hardly ever use Facebook anymore, but not seeing my Facebook feed full of pictures, because I think I've got like nearly 5,000 friends on Facebook who are just photographers who've added me. So my wall is just picture, 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 picture. And if I look at social media, who are all wedding photographers, it's just picture, 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 picture. You're going to burn out a lot quicker. So one of the reasons I love to stay away from photography when I'm not shooting and also make music in my spare time is that when I do shoot, that love is still there. That passion is still there. I'm not I'm not drowned out by a world of photography. I'm just, I'm in it and it's just me at the time and I can be completely involved in it without feeling burnt out in the slightest. You've done, I mean, I, I have attended one of your workshops a couple of years back. Very eye-opening. I was terrified of you and frustratingly, <laughs> I turned up, I turned up quite late and interrupted it, which I was quite annoyed about because of a, a train that was delayed. Oh yes, I remember. What is it about teaching that Okay. So what does teaching do for you? Because obviously if you take out the financial side of it, I think it's not a job you can do unless you take something from it. Um, and in fact, I'm going to leave that as the question. I'm going to ask that again, because I have a second question that's a little bit different. So I'm going to, I'm going to reword that if that's okay. What is it about teaching that you enjoy and what do you take from teaching? Because a lot of people would probably just point to the financial side of things, whereas I actually don't think it's a job you can do unless you are taking something from it yourself in terms of learning about yourself or learning about the craft. Yes, completely agree. I've, um, I've, I've always loved like teaching and helping people. If I can inspire someone, that makes me very happy. And when I get when I get emails back from people saying that, you know, here's what I've done over the year, have a look, and that's got better and they're, they're happy with their new skills and their life is happier because their work is happier and their, their business is running better. I mean, that's exceedingly rewarding. And, you know, I, you know, I think I charge like 475 for a full day's workshop, which might sound a lot, but considering the hours that I've put in and the information I'm giving people and the the love and the effort. I don't think it's that much at all. I think it's quite a good price because it's distilled over like years and years of studying the absolute best of other photographers and trying to distill it all into one, one workshop. And I, there's no filler. It's just information. And I, I don't ever hold anything back. I give people everything because I'm not at a point where I'm worried that people are going to take my work from me because I have my own brand and business. So I mean, I do workshops because I love it. And on the subject of workshops, this is going to sound a bit negative, but I do think there nowadays, especially it's become a, like a booming industry, like, you know, mm. making new award systems, holding new workshops. There are a lot of people doing this stuff who I honestly don't think should be doing it because <laughs> quite a few people have actually come to my workshops and they start doing workshops like a year or two later. And right. I've heard from other people that they're just copying content as well. And you just think... That might be for financial gain. It might be for an ego thing. You, you never know. And that, that you know, that over I've been teaching f workshops for uh, like seven or eight years or something. And in that time, the scene has completely changed. Like it's just workshop, 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 workshop. And I think people are realizing that that's actually a form of income rather than yes. actually shooting weddings, which can struggle because you can actually charge a lot less and get more people into it. Whereas I've never really done it for the money. And the same way that, I don't try and smash through like the UK vet threshold and earn as much as I can by shooting as much as I can. I turn away a lot of weddings just because, like I said, time is valuable to me and life is, I just want to sit in my garden, read a book, play with my cats. You know, I don't need to earn crazy, crazy amounts to be happy. Like as long as I can pay my bills, I live in like a, a very sort of humble, semi-detached three-bedroom house. I don't live in like a mansion or anything. It's very easy to be happy. And I think people can lose sight of what you actually need to have a really, really happy life. Well, on the subject of 
workshops kind of becoming more prominent and that being a a big source of income, I think people, I, I think that also might be a byproduct of YouTube because that has become an absolute den of people selling stuff to other photographers and the amount of photographic personalities that are not known for any of their photos. I mean, there are photographers on YouTube, uh, and I'm saying that with air quotes, who have got enormous followings, but you couldn't pick one of their photos out of a lineup because all they do is they sell products or they sell other people's philosophies and everything is a sponsored video. People can't eat a bowl of cereal without having it sponsored and just getting past that money-making threshold. I think that there is, uh, there's obviously been a little bit of a door discovered in photography to make a lot of money out of a very, very captive market. Yes. And at the end of the day, if people are trying to earn money, I've got nothing against that. That's absolutely fine. And if they do earn money, good for them. Um, and it's, it's the same in the audio business. There's people who teach audio on, on YouTube and they're not actually very good, but they've got like, some have got tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of followers just because it's very, I, I, I call it like a cartoon show. Cause you know, if you watch a cartoon, the scene changes and it's very blah, 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 in your face. They have stuff like mm. that. People are shouting and our next door neighbors, kids, they watch YouTube and me and Paul, the dad, we always say like, we can't believe the stuff they watch cause it's just rubbish. But these, these people who run these YouTube channels are driving around in Porsches and Lamborghinis because they've targeted kids and like opening toys and yeah. stuff. It's, just, it's, it's what it is, what it is, right? I mean, we're probably the last generation to grow up who had a television. We had to wait every week to watch something. Now it's instant. It's just a new yeah. generation. And I'm going to sound like an old person because, <laughs> you know, I'm 40 now. So like these kids don't know nothing, all that sort of stuff. It's just a different yeah different kind of life nowadays, but I actually had to un uninscribe from street photography on my sort of Google uh, feed because I kept getting videos from people on street photography and stuff. And I'd watch them and think, wow, this is just terrible. <laughs> it's, it's just rehashed information. There's nothing that stands out. It's just generic, generic street photography. So I, I detached myself from that as well, because exactly for the reason you say, there's just a flood of people trying to sell you cameras and trying to make a name for themselves, which there's nothing wrong with that, but it's very difficult to, to find the real golden stuff online nowadays. What I do want to talk to you about is uh, having attended your workshop, one of the things that was felt like a very strong through line and something that I think is uh, not something I've really heard from anybody else, especially when it comes to weddings, is you talked quite extensively about how the attitude of the photographer will affect the outcome of the, the photos from the day. And that if you don't go in with the right mindset, you don't go in with the positive mindset. And like you said earlier about kind of um, not taking things to heart, not taking things personally, but considering where everyone else is coming from, that you end up with a better set of photos and you actually end up enjoying the job a lot more. And by enjoying the job a lot more, you end up doing better with it. And it's kind of a self-feeding positive movement. I don't want to steal too much from you there because otherwise it would sound like I'm doing what we were just talking about. But are you ever surprised with your workshops that people want to talk more about like camera gear or they want to talk <laughs> about settings as opposed to talking about the philosophy that you use or the way that you train your eye to be a great photographer? It's, I'm actually quite used to it now because when people are starting out, it's the technical stuff that they focus on. And so I remember once I sort of did a, a big talk about creativity and the mindset. And it's one of my favorite talks that I actually do, actually. This is a few years ago now. And I just finished about how you, you can empower yourself and how you're super powerful and stuff like that. And I said, any questions? And the first hand that went up, someone said, what's your highest ISO? <laughs> I thought, oh, Christ <laughs> alive, I've completely failed as a human trying to put across like the inspiration. But and I, you just get used to it because some people are technically minded and that's all they... Some people get lost in it and they think that that's where the value is. But technically, photography is really simple. You've only got three things. And if, like ISO shutter and aperture, Christ, I only forgot one then. <laughs> but <laughs> so, <laughs> I've been away from it that long. But that's why I say to people, shoot aperture priority because one of the questions I ask people at the workshops is, how many people here shoot manual? And usually it's a surprisingly large amount, like a third to maybe even a half will put their hand up. Then I'll say, how many of you use the camera's meter, like little, um, what's it called? You've got a little indicator in your camera that tells you if your exposure's on. Yeah, the little light meter, yeah. Yeah, how many of you use that to get your base exposure right? And they all keep their hand up. And it's like, well, you're not shooting manual because you're doing exactly what 
Aperture Priority would do. You're just you're zeroing in, in, on that um, exposure. Then you might just bump it a bit to make it brighter or down to make it darker. Why would you use yeah. your fingers to do that when your camera does it instantly? Because you're using that same meter anyway. So, it, you know, true manual is when you look at a room and say, like, that's ISO 800, F5, um, 1250 or something. That's that's true manual. If you use the meter in the camera, it's actually automatic metering. So you, once you use Aperture Priority and you just bump up and down with um, exposure compensation, what you've got to do is set your, um, set your aperture. You know what that is anyway. So you're just bumping up and down. It's so much quicker and you, like I say to people, like if a bride's getting ready in a car or she's just got into the car, you can dip your head down, get a shot of her in the car as a portrait. If something really cool happens behind you, you can literally turn around, not touch anything, take the picture and it will be exposed correctly because aperture priority has sorted that out for you. You couldn't do that with manual. And I, I don't see why... That, that leaves you with headspace. It leaves you with headspace, right, to focus on your composition or to kind of watch the room and, and follow the interactions. That's exactly right. All of your peripheral vision and your thought is what's next? What, what am I going to shoot? What's happening? Rather than what settings am I using? Because once what um, I found with uh, Nikon D750, it's probably the same with any, ca any camera, is that if you just hold down exposure comp button, obviously sometimes you can even do it without holding a button. You can set it so you just move the dial and it changes it for you. One thumb swipe from left to right is actually like a stop. So if I turn around and I see someone standing in front of a window, I know I'm going to have to be three stops up to expose their face. So by the time I'm turning around, I've already moved the dial three swipes. I bring the camera to my eye. I've already sort of pressed the D-pad button to center the, center the um, focus point. So I know exactly where the focus point is going to be. Then I might bump it up to the right. By the time the camera comes up to my eye, it's exposed correctly and the focus point is in roughly the right place. And I can take the picture without even thinking because it's just so instinctive because it's so simple. It's basically pointing at something. You're recompartmentalizing technical knowledge and sort of intellectual uh, headspace into muscle memory. Yes, because a sort of typical analogy would be, why would you buy like a four-wheel drive Audi R6 or R8 or whatever, turn four-wheel drive off and then start pushing it along yourself or put custard in instead of petrol? <laughs> Right, you've, got right. these, you've got these cameras that are exceedingly capable technically and you know they can sort the exposure for you out and you've got exposure compensation, you've got great AF. Just use it because it's there to be used. One of the things that you brought up on the workshop that I did with you, and again, I'm not trying to, to steal too much, but one of the things that really stood out to me, and it wasn't really a prominent point in what you did, but I think it caught a few people off guard. Um, if we do talk about gear is that you use wider lenses than people expect. And so for some couple photos, you were talking about using, uh, I think a 35 was pretty much the predominant focal length. Whereas a lot of people would probably venture towards the 85 mil because of being slightly scared of people and what they are told to <laughs> usually by YouTube as what you use for a portrait. Why do you prefer to go for a wider focal length? I have more control over the environment. Um, I do use 85 more now because I shoot more sort of editorial. So I, I shoot portrait a lot more. I never used to shoot portrait ever, but now I shoot a fair bit of portrait for um, um, for portraits. And I will always use 85 mil for portraits. Obviously you should never use 35 mil for that or even 50 really. 85 is perfect for you can use 50, but 85 is perfect for a portrait, portrait. But with a 35 mil, you can show the environment. Um, with 85, you can obviously get a lovely, beautiful, blurred background. But with a 35, with an open, wide open at 1.4, if you get close, you can get a beautiful blurred background, but you can show structure in the environment. You can use more of the environment to compose with and put people in frames because the further you are away and the longer your lens, the less control you have over the background. It's like if you shot with 200 mil with a subject far away, your background is literally whatever is directly behind the couple. But if you get up with 24 mil and you're, you're up close with wide angle, you can literally, 24 is a bit too much to be honest, with 35, you can crouch and get so much of the sky and you can tiptoe and get all the floor in. You can put them bottom left and get a load of stuff in. So you can, you can show the environment as well as the portrait because sometimes portraits can look a bit boring if they're all 85 mil but if you get up close with the 1.4 35 you can bring in the environment and give a little bit more compositional it's called dynamic tension which is the movement inside the photograph you can add more of that and mix it in with your 85 mils I mean, I, I couldn't agree more in terms of, I feel like the more, I think probably because I'm coming at this from a, a much lower rung on the ladder, but 
depending on the venue that I'm working at, if I can use something where I can bring in more context and I can contextualize where they are at the venue and and bring some elements of the venue into an image, then I'll always try and do that. Whereas there are obviously going to be times, especially I think when you're first starting out as a wedding photographer, when you might have to hide a few things at the, at the venues that you're shooting. Yeah. We're pretty close to done. I, I really do appreciate you taking the time to do this. Um, you mentioned the D750. Are you still shooting DSLR? Because I know that you did a short review blog on the uh, Nikon Z7, I think it was. Yes, it was. That was when I shot um, images for Nikon Japan for the release of that. I'm actually, I've got hold of D8, sorry, D780s at the moment, which have the the AF and the sensor from the D4 and the mirrorless from the Z6, I think, on the back. So it's actually got two cameras in one, which is insane. But I just, like everybody else, I haven't had a chance to shoot a wedding with them yet, so I can't really comment. But I'm hoping they're going to be my next camera. Excuse me, sorry. Because um, I'm a massive fan of the D750, as everybody knows, because the RAW files are just magic. You can You can push them so far and you can still get the right skin tone because a lot of people just think that dynamic range is just light. Like when you push, say you've got an underexposed image, you push up the exposure. People talk about the detail in the shadows, but it also affects the color, especially at higher ISOs. A lot of the time, the higher the ISO, the worse the color, but the 750 has just got magic rules in it. And I haven't actually compared the 780 yet and I'm hoping they're going to be as good. One of the things I took away from uh, seeing you talk um, especially about post-processing, was that you treated the processing of a wedding as a very individual thing where you were taking on image by image. So there, there would be an overall look, but you would you would give a lot of attention to each image, especially towards the cleanup to make sure that it was very distraction-free and also just to make sure that the eye was being drawn to the right place. I think the more and more that we develop tools to batch edit, the more and more that art is being lost. And I th- I might be wrong here, but I feel like that's something that really sets you aside and sets your work aside is that there's so much attention to each frame. Yeah, thank you for noticing that. That's exactly right. And that's that's exactly what the the previous editing masterclasses that I did in March were about. It was all about a full day of how to clean a picture and how to take a picture first properly to give you the best canvas to paint on. But the effort that you need, not need, sorry, that's not the right word, but the effort that I put in that I believe you need to have consistently elegant pictures from any wedding in any location in any venue in any light because it has to be consistent I want people to be able to pick a picture from mine that's dance floor with a flash or on a beach with a in the sunset with an 85 mil or indoors with a 35 mil and I want them to look like they came from the same wedding and as you say that takes time and where to focus the eye rather than just using a vignette or a single gradient or not just getting rid of a fire hydrant, but also cigarettes on the floor or a bird mess on the window. I do put in a lot of effort in, but it makes a huge, huge difference. So as you say, I do believe, and I don't actually agree with all this preset stuff because presets are another thing that are selling very well. So preset this, here's a famous photographer, here's a preset. Look, your work looks like theirs. Um, I think that's actually teaching people to be less skilled because if you're a photographer, well, I suppose it depends how you class yourself because you may say, I'm a photographer. I only take pictures. I get all the editing done by someone else. That's completely fair enough. My own viewpoint is that I'm a photographer and I deliver the photograph. So I'm responsible for the editing. So for me, being a photographer means being an editor. So I have to be the best editor I can be to provide the best photograph I can provide. That's my personal viewpoint. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Um, Mm. And so I never outsource, I never batch anything, as you say, it's completely one picture at a time because I want that end product to be as perfect as it, as it can be. But I do... Well, it's, I a stra- see- it's a strange mentality, right? To take to take so much pride in taking the photo and then be dismissive of what you do with the file. Yes, but what I've realised is um, some people do it because they love it and some people treat it as a business. And so some people will shoot 60, 100, 120 weddings They outsource the culling, they outsource the website, they outsource the editing and they just shoot and then they deliver it and that's it. And they're happy and they run a very successful business. And that's absolutely fine. That's brilliant. Most businesses are out to make money, right? But then there are other people who do it because they love to do it. So there's just, and everybody in between. So it just depends where you fit on the scale. But I think, and I genuinely believe that 
if you really want to get to higher, higher levels, you just have to start taking responsibility to make the best you can because it's about you, right? And your vision. And I kind of understand how people outsource culling because some of my best pictures have been from a shop. When I'm culling, I think that's a bit rubbish. It's underexposed, but it's got potential. And then you can really transform that image into something wonderful. I think um, there's a picture on my Instagram of a bride. It's like a close-up face portrait and she's looking to the side. It's all misty and beautiful. And there's a sunbeam behind her. That came from a pretty bog-standard image, but I made it look beautiful because I saw the potential when I'm culling. So I would never pass that off to someone else because you might miss a little gem. Well, the idea of outsourcing culling terrifies me because <laughs> that the person that's culling is, is not going to know who was important and what moments particularly stood out on the day. So you can also end up losing stuff that has massive significance. It might just be um, what looks like a standard picture of two people talking, but that might be the first time that granddad has stood up in two years or or whatever. So <laughs> that, that side Good of example. things terrifies me. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think a lot of photographers will know this, that when they'll feel it, but maybe all of them, but when you're shooting, you know if you've taken a good picture and you know which ones you don't need anymore. So if you if you cull like a few days later, you'll know to skip a section and you'll know that the next bit is going to be better. And you'll know exactly yeah. like you said, you'll know where the flow is, where the important bit was. And yeah, that's all missing. I don't know how many people outsource cussing, but <laughs> cussing. <laughs> They've got someone to swear for them at weddings. <laughs> oh, um, where's my bloody food? Yeah, <laughs> crumbs. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know where, I, I don't know. I don't, maybe it's a mentality thing that I just can't get my head around, but the idea of someone taking control of what passes through a threshold of my work terrifies me, especially when there's someone that wasn't even there on the day. Yeah. Very well put with the word threshold. That's uh, impressive. <laughs> yeah. I, I know, I know about nine words. I'm quite impressed with myself, to be honest. <laughs> we're close to wrapping up now um one thing i do want to ask you and it's a really horribly broad question so i do apologize but you are obviously incredibly accomplished in what you do excluding the current situation with this stupid pandemic that we're all having to put up with that it can just go away as quickly as possible how do you see yourself do, do you plan sort of five years ahead do you do you plan do you have like a life plan for like five years ahead ten years ahead or are you someone that lives year by year or do you just kind of take each day as it comes um i think i'm gonna live by every second basically i live in the moment which is to my detriment sometimes um i just take every day as it comes and i just enjoy it i don't really have a plan i know i want to keep shooting weddings but, and just to call fall back on what i said earlier I don't want to burn out by shooting loads of weddings a year and falling out of love with it. So I restrict myself to 10, 12 a year. So I keep myself fresh. And just to backtrack on one other important point, people will people usually say to me, yeah, but you can edit that long and take that time because you shoot less weddings. But I used to edit that much when I was shooting 30, 40 weddings a year. So I've, I've done it since day one, not just now. But long-term... I have no idea. I'll probably end up teaching a bit more and shooting a bit less maybe, but I, who who knows what's going to happen. Okay. So you've got the new website on the way. Where can everyone find your wedding work and where can they find your street work? Wedding work will stay at www.rossharvey.com and the street work is just swap the www for street. So it's street.rossharvey.com. That's still there. And there's also, of course, like you mentioned, um, the street stuff on that particular website is just singular images. If you want the big blog posts like Cuba, India, Tokyo, they're on my main website under the sort of blog section. But the new website should be live um, tail end of June, I think. I can't wait, to be honest with you. I'm so looking forward to uh, seeing it. When you put up a little announcement about that a while back, I've, I've, I wouldn't say I've been checking daily, but it's getting close. <laughs> I'm an enormous fan of yours. I, I Like I said at the start of this, and I genuinely mean it, I have been criticised in the past for being apparently too nice to people, which is the only time in my life anyone's ever said I'm too nice. But I genuinely have <laughs> you as number one as a photographer in the world. You're my absolute favourite photographer. You're the inspiration for me shooting weddings. You're the benchmark that I hold my work up against and I'm constantly disappointed with myself. I really do appreciate <laughs> you taking the time to do this. That's very kind of you, Chris. Yeah, it makes it all worthwhile. And we're... I'm the same. I'm always disappointed in what I do the next day. <laughs> that could be better. That's how we grow and get better every time. The curse of being a photographer. I think it's the curse of actually caring about you, what, what, you, what you put out and your sort of quality control. I think that's a really good thing to have because it drives you and drives you and drives you. So you're, everyone, everyone can make it. Everyone's equal, really, in what they can achieve. Mm, I'm not. <laughs> yes, you are. 